0: Hello and welcome, friends, to another edition of Sustainability Now with me, Justin Mogg, here on Forward Radio. We are your community radio station broadcasting out of the top of the historic Habern Building at 106.5 FM, live streaming to the world at forwardradio.org. And coming up on April 9th, we will mark the fourth anniversary of doing this amazing work, this community treasure that you all, the listeners, support, and we'll be marking the occasion with a pledge drive. We're going to ask for your contributions coming up March 27th through April 9th. And one thing that will be on offer as a special thank you gift during the pledge drive is my copy of the book we're going to talk about today, Durable Trades by Rory Groves. And I'm so delighted to have Rory in the virtual studio with me today, joining us from Minnesota. Welcome, Rory.
1: Thank you, Justin. It's good to be here. I appreciate the opportunity to share. Yeah. Absolutely. So Durable
0: Trades, the subtitle is Family-Centered Economies That Have Stood the Test of Time. I am so excited to talk about this topic for two reasons. One, I consider myself sort of an urban homesteader. And we're going to talk about some of these family based homesteading type trades, which is a wonderful way to put it. I'm a big fan of subsistence. Mm. (laughs) I've got my start in subsistence agriculture and I still do that and have worked with subsistence agrarians around the world. So that's one reason I'm really excited about it. But the other reason is that now I'm in higher education. And higher education is a place where people come to learn the modern trades, I suppose. Mm. We don't like to call ourselves trades schools, but you're definitely learning a career and on a career path when you're in higher ed. So this is an exciting topic for me to talk about. How can we make our trades or our economies, really, more based on durability? And that is so fundamental to sustainability. So before we dive into the book, Rory, I'd love for you to just tell a little of your personal story i know you didn't come on a straight line path to durable trades you weren't raised as a farmer or anything like that right so tell us about your story and how you ended up homesteading in minnesota
1: yeah, I came about this at about the most indirect way you possibly could. <laughs> I mean, I was raised in the suburbs of Minneapolis. I was the kid that played video games with every spare right. moment that I had, you know, <laughs> playing Legend, Legend of Zelda and then every kind of video game system that came out. That was my world. And I always was into computers and technology. And so I uh, went to school there in uh, Springfield, Missouri at Evangel University, and I got a degree in computer science. But at the time I even got the degree, I was already working for companies. I loved computer programming. I loved everything to do with technology. This was, I graduated in um, 99. So this oh. was right at the height of the uh, dot-com mania. And if you were graduating with a computer science degree back in 1999, you knew, you know, it was your birthright to become a dot-com millionaire. <laughs> exactly. Right? That was like, it's a stop. It's just the next step after college. Is Everybody's just, you know, doing it. Yeah, you just form, <laughs> incorporate your company and uh, put a dot .com. That was <laughs> Today everyone's doing something with blockchain, but back in 99 it was you just put a dot .com at the end of your business and then all of a sudden you could start taking in the venture capital because you're going to do something very interesting.
0: And now you could do dot .pizza
1: the opportunities are unlimited (laughs) (laughs) so you know it didn't take me too long to figure out that that wasn't exactly going to be the path but one of the things over the course of working in this type of a profession so i've been doing this now for 20 years post-college i have my own software business i've worked in technology consulting for many companies and i still do part-time technology consulting as well but in a number of cases, you know, a lot of the things that I would create would become obsolete in a very oh. short amount of time. That was kind of the trade-off with this high technology was that things tend to go obsolete very quickly. And we're seeing more and more of that just as technology progresses. Would you say, yeah. Rory, that this was planned obsolescence? <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now now you're getting into the, uh, the nitty-gritty of it here. So. It didn't really matter the upshot of it was you look back over a career of 20 years and you say what have i built that's going to last in that last 20 years and you're looking ahead at the next 20 years or the next 40 years and you're saying what what can i put my hand to that will last that will sustain and it really is just something that started to creep up on me at the same time about eight years ago we moved out to a hobby farm in southern minnesota Got really interested in gardening, and I wanted some more space than my postage stamp-sized lot in Minneapolis would afford me. So I really got into gardening and working with the soil, and I got interested in organics and things like that. And for a computer programmer, I mean, it was miraculous that you could put some seeds in the ground. I mean, I know this sounds so obvious, (laughs) But you got to, i mean, when you're staring at screens all day and you're writing code, and everything is completely mental. So the fact that you could work outside, break a sweat, even with your and, hands, yes, yeah, with yes. your hands, plant some seeds, and seven days later you see something sprouting out of the ground, and you know, forty to sixty days later, there's food there you can eat. It just was like a modern miracle. Is <laughs> an ancient miracle, but it, I mean, but that's to me, it was just so interesting and such a diversion from the high tech world that I was in. And so the bottom line is I was hooked Yeah. and I wanted to do more. And so we moved out to the country about nine years ago. Now we got a nice little acreage out here, about an hour South of Minneapolis nice. in Northfield, Minnesota. Oh yeah. Great town. We really love it here. And um, started, you know, adding little by little chickens and then a bigger garden. And then uh, it snowballs, got some,
0: doesn't
1: it? <laughs> got some yeah. livestock. And now we're kind of doing a lot of tinkering around. We haven't really settled in on exactly what we're doing here, but we love the whole experience and we love working with the land and with the animals. And we love sharing about what we're learning. And that whole process out here has really had an impact on me and the way, I mean, this was all going on at the same time I was kind of reconsidering my career path. Yeah. So this whole working with the land, stewarding the land, you know, doing it well, you know, reading Wendell Berry and Joel Salatin and really thinking like, I don't want to do this with just chemicals and antibiotics. You know, this has got to be sustainable. This is how people used to do this for thousands of years. Sure. How can we do this in a way that's sustainable? And so that was just a long kind of learning curve to the point where it really kind of forced the issue on work because this was no longer a hobby farm. We really wanted to see if we could do something with this and build something that could last. Like I had said, with technology, everything going obsolete, is there a way that you can still build something that will last? And secondly, is there something, because when I started out, I was young and single and now I'm married and we have children and I wanted to do something with my family at the same time. Mm -hmm. I wanted it to be not just something that's gratifying to me or, or fulfilling for me and so forth and sustainable, but I wanna include the people that I love the most. I wanna do this adventure together. I don't wanna leave and go to a corporate office for 60 hours a week. That just wasn't as much my heart anymore is the kind of the corporate ladder. So that's where the whole idea for the book started. And again, I didn't start out to write a book. I just wanted to answer those questions is, what's out there for someone like me that's looking for a different way to do this And, um, it's not about the money, you know, it's really about the experience, about working with people that I love and about building something that will last. So that gets you to uh, chapter one.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That is so great. So let me just be clear here. So you're saying that simply switching from a tech job to say a blue collar job where you got to work with your hands and do something satisfying with your hands, that wouldn't have really scratched the itch you had. You wanted something more than that.
1: Well, I was living kind of like an increasingly incongruent life. When we moved to the farm, it was really a dream to become self-sufficient, yeah. like you had talked about, the subsistence. And by the way, I like to say subsistence is not a dirty word. Right, right. It's <laughs> ironic on a couple levels, but you know what I mean? You know, so many people talk about subsistence as if it's like some kind of terrible thing. Yeah. But living close to the land is incredibly gratifying, Isn't fulfilling, it? and a meaningful way to live. Yeah. And so the more that we got involved in farming activities and and meeting other people and other families who were moving out to the country and doing these kinds of things, it just the whole high tech thing where I would come in and actually earn my dough based on sitting in front of a computer screen and typing code. It just started to get old and I just started to lose my passion for that kind of work. And my heart was really like, how can I really make a go of this? and be congruent with everything else I'm trying to do.
0: No, absolutely. It's just funny the way language defines things because you know most people growing up when they're kids, they have what are called chores, right? We call them chores. Mm -hmm. And there is definitely a lot of negative stigma associated with chores. In your book, you're kind of flipping that and saying, these are actually trades. These are skills. Mm -hmm.
1: (laughs) This is valuable work. You know, when I came out here, it's interesting you bring that up. I was very cognizant of the fact that this was my dream to come out to the country and to work really hard and to dig up the ground. And I was very cautious because you'd hear stories of a lot of kids, and there's probably listeners out there right now saying, oh, yeah, my dad made me do this or that. or I had to work (laughs) on a friend's farm. I am never going to a farm, believe me. And usually when I talk to people like that, I mean, they got the dirtiest, rottenest (laughs) chores that nobody wanted to do. There wasn't really a thought to the mentorship process of all this, Right. But the thing is, so, so when I came out here, I just thought, you know, I don't want them to hate this. I want them to love the farm and to enjoy it. And one of the things I noticed over time was I was actually depriving my kids. Like they were capable of a lot more than I gave them credit for. My oldest right now is 10 years old, and I've actually shifted in my mindset around the whole chores thing into how can I really prepare him to have a broad base of knowledge of how to grow his own food and raise animals and work within a lot of different trades, you know, building trades and woodworking and machinery and all these different skills that are really, really important skills. You've got to have these skills in any society, and they're very versatile skills. How can I train him using chores as kind of like the testing grounds? Yeah, Not just sending them out to clean a chicken coop every six weeks because i don't want to do it like what is the actual (laughs) curriculum here that we can train them up so i started just really embracing the whole chores and using it as as a way to help teach and educate and and we're all learning i mean i'm no expert at this but everything that i learned my kids and my wife were learning right alongside each other
0: yeah and we should be clear this isn't a book about agriculture, right? You can Correct. you can talk about durable trades completely divorced from the context of farming. If farming's not your thing, there are lots of great examples in this book of other durable trades and we're going to dive into some of those examples. But in all contexts which you're really trying to get at, I think are a, a different way of thinking about work obviously, Mm -hmm. and economy, a more family-centered economy. Mm -hmm. So tell our listeners a little bit about what you mean when you, when you folk and why focus on family-centered.
1: Sure. So throughout history, you, you have to back up before the industrial revolution. And for the most of human history, there were no corporate economies. There were national economies, but those national economies were made up of family economies. The family was the economy. You had everyone working together in that family in order for the family to survive. I mean, it wasn't something where anyone was planning it. It just was out of necessity. And then those families depended on each other. You had a community that really depended on each other in order for the community to survive. And in that kind of arrangement, you had what was more important than profit and efficiency was relationships. Relationships were really at the core of a well-functioning, economy whether it be at the family level or the national level. And one of the things that we lost when we went through the industrial revolution was this focus on relationships. And I think you can see that where we're abundant in so many different things like in material possessions, but we have so many strained relationships at the same time. Mm-hmm. And so this idea of a family economy is kind of harkening back to the strong relational types of economies where people really needed each other, young people and old people. I mean, everyone had a place in that economy and no one was relegated as undesirable because we needed everyone to participate in order for it to be effective. And so the whole idea of a family-centered economy or a family economy is looking back to those professions and vocations, those pre-industrial professions, where families worked together and there was a lot of benefit to having families working together. In other words, there wasn't one single breadwinner commuting to an office an hour away and then bringing home the single income or, or maybe two incomes for that family, but where they're separated out into different factories the whole time. That was an artifact of the Industrial Revolution. Right, right. And what I wanted to know is what's out there for families, for people who want to build those strong relationships again.
0: I'm speaking today here on Sustainability Now with Rory Groves. He is an author and a computer programmer turned homesteader, joining us from his farm in southern Minnesota, where he and his wife, Becca, now reside and raise sheep and host (laughs) homesteading workshops and homeschool their five children. My gosh, that's a lot of good work right there. (laughs) That's (laughs) Uh, a lot of work. (laughs) We're talking about his book, Durable Trades, Family-Centered Economies That Have Stood the Test of Time. Uh, Starting on next week's show, you could pick up a copy of this book during our pledge drive coming up. You make a contribution to the station, and I'll send you my copy of this fantastic book that I've really been enjoying diving into. So yeah, I mean, it seems like a a lot of things in our world. The Industrial Revolution really sent us down a path that's not healthy for people (laughs) in so many ways and not healthy for families. And so is it possible to reclaim a life that is more healthy and more sustainable post-Industrial Revolution? Are these trade still applicable today?
1: Yeah, I believe it's not only possible, I believe it's necessary. And I believe that it will revert to family-centered economies because these are the most durable types of, of economies throughout time. I mean, these are the proven and the tested ways. And the whole premise of the book is just that. I look at what are the trades. And by the term trades, I don't mean just blue collar building trades. I just mean vocations, yes, vocations that have been around since before the founding of our country. Because right in 1790 is kind of the kickoff date, you could say, for the Industrial Revolution, which ran from about 1790 to the Civil War, roughly. Yeah. And it continues on in many variations today. But the mindset really kicked off there at the founding of our country. And I look at 61 trades in all that were around before the Industrial Revolution and are still around today and thriving. And this is kind of the pick list of what has survived the worst that history can throw at you. I mean, you to survive that period, you've been through revolutions and wars and depressions and recessions and, and currency devaluations, you name it. That period of time and industrialism. Yeah. So it's survived. And it's. I'm not necessarily saying these are the only trades that will exist into the future, but they're very durable just by virtue of having lasted this long. And just let's talk a little bit about
0: what some of these trades are, because we, we let's dive from the abstract to a little more concrete. So we've we've mentioned things like farming and sheep herding and things like that, but some of the you know in your top twenty durable trades, you know I was surprised to see things like lawyer. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, A little further down on your list are things like physician, right? Doctors. And so, you know, you go into higher ed, well, we want you to be a a lawyer or a doctor, right? Like that's what your parents tell you to do, right? And we kind of dismiss that maybe as a little superfluous, but there's like 30,000 different career paths now. And I guess what you're pointing to is that some of these things that maybe it was like your your parents told you you really should do. The reason is because there's always going to be a demand for it, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. These are professions that have, there has always been a demand, whether or not there's a recession or depression, they will come right back if they are affected by that. They're in here, I think 80% of the top 20 have to do with food, fiber, and shelter. So these are basic necessities that people have, that people will always need. And there's always going to be demand for that kind of thing. And furthermore, in in the way that I arranged the book, it's laid out in order of durability. So when you say further down the list, like physician, those are durable as well. They're not as family centered as things like farming can be. And so I've ranked all of them from most durable and most family centered down to least, but to have made it on the list at all, they've, they're very, very durable professions.
0: Yeah. One great example of that when I was reading the book was sailor, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we're always going to need sailors. It's a good hands-on job, but yeah, that kind of takes you away from your family, right? <laughs> Unless you can yeah. have your family on board with you. <laughs>
1: (laughs) (laughs) Lower scores. Yeah. So lower scores on the family centeredness for sailor.
0: Yeah. Well, okay, let's dive into this scoring system since we've already revealed it. So that's how the book is structured. A, a lovely, really helpful introduction to sort of the history of work and the, how the Industrial Revolution sent us down this different path. But then the meat of the book is is an ordered ranking of these durable trades. So how did you come up with these different rankings? What does the scoring system mean?
1: Yeah, so I had to come up with, you know, these. I didn't want to rank it based on income, for example, no. and yeah. Yeah. A lot of career guides will give you just what the job earns and things like that. But I wanted to look at a lot of these different variety of criteria, such as what we've talked about already, the, you know, the stability of the profession and the family-centeredness, but also things like what are the barriers to entry? How resilient is it? One thing that turned out to be really useful research was the resiliency score. Yeah, And that is, how does it bounce back from a shock? Those things are kind of determined by how long are the supply chains. So I'll give you one example. If you're a woodworker and you import all of your product from Canada and all of your materials, chemicals, or whatever you need to do to varnish the wood and, or paint the wood or whatever the tools are, if you have a longer supply chain where you're relying on imports from China and Canada and all over the world, you're going to be more impacted by a supply chain disruption, which we all just went through last year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: We have a visceral understanding. And you saw exactly what happened. I mean,
1: we we ran out of food in the grocery stores because we have these really long supply chains. And supply chains that are really long are highly efficient, but they're very vulnerable to shocks. However, if you were a woodworker, let's say, and you had your own forest, you lived on a, a lot of land where you can cut down your own trees and you could whatever, procure the, the, the natural resources locally or within your own community, you're barely going to be disrupted by those supply chain disruptions, especially global ones. So those were the kind of considerations I made when we were going through these different trades is how these different trades lined up and how vulnerable they were to some of these things, how much they relied mm-hmm. on long supply chains and, and how impacted they might be in a recession, for example. So that's just going deep on one of the criteria. So I came up with five criteria like that. And under each criteria, they got a ranking a score and everything is just laid out from top to bottom based on that score.
0: And so we should just stay. I mean, the number one is a shepherd, which you now find yourself
1: raising sheep. So <laughs> good choice there. <laughs> yeah, one of the most historically looked down upon trades yeah. happens to be the most durable and the most family centered. And the only reason why shepherd beat out farmer, and when I say shepherd, I mean really anyone who works with animal husbandry. Right, be a broader right. term. For right, it. but I kind of use in the historical term for a lot of these trades, but. The only reason why shepherding ranked a little bit higher beat out farmer was because it has a lot less change to the tooling that farming has gone through with the tractors and the mechanization of farming. Sure. Right. Now there's certainly the kind of intensive CAFOs, that, you know, the feedlot operations where they cram a lot of animals. That is a me- form of mechanization as well, but you still see quite a lot of people shepherding, raising animals by hand you know, just overseeing it themselves on their own pasture and on their land. That's a very typical operation that we still have today, and that hasn't changed for thousands and thousands of years. That's cool.
0: And then the bottom of your list, which doesn't mean the most unsustainable job ever, but in terms of these 61 that you looked at,
1: (laughs) is tax collector. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Tax collector's on the the list. Because
0: mortician's on here too, right? (laughs) Yes. Undertaker is on there as well.
1: (laughs) These are, unfortunately for the rest of us, tax collector, that just stubborn trade won't go (laughs) way you're going to have job security with that other ones are like statesmen which is basically a politician or people who leads other people that is always a durable trade there's not very many of those jobs but they're there all throughout history yeah
0: well and other things towards the bottom of your list are actor and athlete you know it's interesting to think about all these Think that, yeah, they've, these jobs have really stood the test of time and we still yeah. need them today, but for all kinds of different reasons, you know, it doesn't necessarily meet like a basic human need. We don't
1: really need athletes to survive, but hard to imagine a world without them, right? Well, you know, societies kind of go through different cycles and you have back in Rome, of course, we had the Olympics going on. Athletes was a very common thing that you had in the early, about 2000 years ago and you saw that go away. And that's one of the reasons why they ranked lower is because you saw professional athletes fade into history for a good almost 2000 years, maybe yeah. 1500 years. Huh. And it didn't really recur until the mid 19th century. We started to see baseball and some professional. Now, sports were going on. You just wouldn't be able to get a full time job as an athlete. So people were always playing games throughout history. And the same thing kind of goes with actor. I mean, we have Shakespeare, you know, we have all of the plays. Even in the Bible, there's a mention of one of the theaters. uh, Paul, I think, mentions one of the theaters that was in the town that they were visiting in Rome. So you see these perennial trades. There may not be a lot of opportunities in those trades. Maybe not a lot of people work full time in those trades, but there they are. They're there. Yeah,
0: yeah. Now, Rory, your book is centered on the U.S., But I wonder if you've thought about whether these scores, for instance, about resiliency, whether it's really impacted at all by geography and culture. So, you know, we've talked about going back to biblical times, so totally different place, different culture than the United States. But is it true that the resiliency of a woodworker, for instance, that that trade is going to be the same no matter where you are, whether you live in a desert or in the rainforest?
1: Well, there's a lot of variability within each trade, of course. So, you know, you could have a woodworker In one's time and geography, not as sustainable as a woodworker elsewhere. So I settled in with the kind of the American pre-industrial to present time period, simply because the availability and access to data that I had. Yeah. You know, it's hard to get records for a lot of these things going back to either to other cultures or to go back further in time, and then also because we could measure with a fair amount of reasonability, what it would be like today to work in that trade, or I could go talk to people working in that trade today. And that's what I did in, in a lot of the, especially the top 20 of these trades, which are kind of like the best ofs. Uh, I spend a lot more time on those top 20 and there's a profile along with each chapter that explains what a day in the life is like for working in that trade. And so, yeah, I mean, I would absolutely say that a lot of these are going to be transferable to other places and other geographies. I just can't make the same kind of scoring metric that I could with using the data that I had for America and the Bureau of Labor Statistics that we have. We have glorious amounts of data here in the U.S. that makes it a lot easier to compare apples to apples. Right,
0: right. I'm speaking today with Rory Groves joining us from his homestead in southern Minnesota he's the author of a new book called Durable Trades Family Centered Economies that have stood the test of time and uh, next week's sustainability now starting with our pledge drive uh, here on Forward Radio to celebrate our fourth anniversary you'll be able to pick up a copy of this book for yourself with a contribution to Forward Radio so go to forwardradio.org next week and uh, get in on that Rory I didn't see any about journalism in your book or the media what what's happened to us
1: well authors in the book and it's in the top 20 author, so okay. you could maybe consider yourself an author i suppose there'd be a way to make a living doing that of course journalists have been around ben franklin has mentioned in the book he, he was a tradesman of many multiple talents <laughs> that's right <laughs> publishing is also in the book too Okay. So yeah,
0: okay. It fits in in different ways. One of the points you make in the book, mentioning Benjamin Franklin really makes me think that, that for our household durability, having multiple skills in multiple trades yes, is really yes. important,
1: right? This is another very key factor that's different today than we used to practice. I make a recommendations in the book based off of all the research. Um, I make some kind of common success factors that I saw after I did all of this research. And one of those was to practice multiple, multiple overlapping trades and this is where you would see throughout history a lot of families that would undertake one trade were actually operating in maybe two or three or four trades simultaneously maybe sometimes depending on the season of the year And so, you know, we mentioned Ben Franklin, he was an author, he was a publisher, he was a statesman, he was an inventor, so a scientist, and uh, he had a number of things going on. Uh, George Washington, you know, he was an, an orchardist and Thomas Jefferson was known for his gardens in Monticello. So we have a lot of diversification is what you'd say. That doesn't mean you have multiple stocks in your stock portfolio. It means that (laughs) you actually have multiple trades that you're practicing. And if you would see a disruption to one of these trades, you know, it might only represent one fifth of your income. Hmm. And so you can make it, you can hit it over a rough patch there and make it to the other side without it completely decimating your prospects, such as if you get laid off from work and that's your sole source of income. So that is definitely one of the benefits to looking at it that way and finding ways to get involved with your families. Also looking at your family's strengths. Everybody has strengths and weaknesses, right? Yeah. And I think when you come together and you view your own family as a collection of these strengths, you start to ask the questions differently is what can we as a family do? What's the right fit for all of us together? What do we do really well together? And you start to think in those terms and it can be a, a very powerful way to start to envision a new economy, a business that's not just something to earn income, but to really find fulfillment and build relationships with each other. And then let the income you know, come in secondarily almost, because if you find something that you're passionate about and that you're good at, that's going to find a way to you.
0: Well, you mentioned there, you know, investments in stocks. And in a way, we can think about our lives as being investments, right? We can make personal investments, even if they're not monetary, just in our time and attention. And those investments can help secure our future, right?
1: Absolutely. And your children's future. I mean, I think a lot of what we're doing here, Becca and I, we're hitting our head on brick walls a lot of the time trying to figure <laughs> out how to raise sheep. And right now we're in lambing season. So we've got a number of sheep out oh, there wow. that we're waiting for them to, to have their lambs and to make sure everything's going okay. And I have alarms that I wake up several times throughout the night and right, right. check a little webcam that I have in the barn just to see if there's anything going on out there. <laughs> and it, it's just like, it's painful <laughs> to learn these lessons. But we're, we're basically first generation farmers right now. Yeah. One of the things that I'm tucking away in the back of my mind is that we're really earning an education for our children and that they can choose to do this if they want to continue it. They'll have a great base of knowledge. And I think parents can start to think that way generationally. In fact, that's one of the things that I mentioned in the book is to think generationally. Think how these decisions are going to impact your your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren. And there are things that you can be doing today and instilling in your kids today that might not pay off this year, but it might have a long-term yield and then continue to pay off for a long time to come. Yeah. Wow.
0: So I want to know about some of the trades that really surprised you when you were pulling this book together that maybe you hadn't thought about.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, there's a number of them in there. One of them that ranked very high was Midwife. Yes. Yes. And I was surprised to see that because, you know, it, it used to be what, what I was surprised to find out was that it used to be so common. And in fact, in many parts of the world, it's very common in oh, yeah. the most common way to deliver children. Yeah. It's just in the United States that it's kind of been uh, had this stigma for a right. number of decades. But midwifery is coming back and it's, it's one of the fastest growing segments and it's not even legal in all 50 states right now. So they've got some significant challenges depending on where you live, but it is a very interesting trade that has a ton of demand. I mean, the the demand for natural birth is surging right now. I go into some of these statistics in the book. So that was really interesting to see that kind of resurgence of some of these older trades that people are really hungry for. They want to do things more in a natural way, and that is spurring a lot of interest in some of these trades. Another one was Butcher that made the top 20. Right now, largely thanks to the pandemic and the supply chain disruption, local butchers are booked out over (laughs) a year for taking animals. And we almost couldn't get our animals in this year. It's only, I think, because I knew the owner of the shop that they made some exceptions for me. But there is so much demand for private butchers, in other words, to come in and process cattle and hogs and sheep and goats and chickens and all that kind of thing, because there's a huge demand for naturally raised organic food. And that's coming from the small family farms. So that's been on an upswing generally for about the last 10 to 20 years. But just in the last year, it's gone crazy. I mean, yeah. there's a huge demand now for locally processed food. And that's a good problem to have. I mean, that's a great a, problem to have. Yeah. So news. some of these things that you would think would be almost lost to history, they're very much part of the modern trend. In fact, you know, some of these trades are very lucrative right mm. now because there's very few people willing to go into them. So I got to be
0: honest, Rory, one of the things that really caught my eye and made me want to talk to you and to read this book was the simple recommendation from Wendell Berry. And I'm going to read it because it's so short and to the point, and I love Wendell Berry so much. He says, not every book is necessary, not by a long shot, but Durable Trades is necessary. I think that is such a great recommendation. So who is it necessary for? Who is this book for, Rory? Rory.
1: Yeah, I was very honored to get to meet Wendell actually about a year ago and we discussed the manuscript a little bit. So he was very encouraging to me at the time and afterwards. The book is for, well, first of all, it's for guys like me and families like ours who have been on a career path and they're rethinking that path. Either they're climbing a ladder or they're going down a trajectory and they're rethinking that this isn't really what I want to do You know, with my family for the rest of my career. And I just wanna know, are there other options out there? That's why I wrote the book in the first place. Yeah. The second group that I'd say it would be for is husbands and wives that want to team up. They're looking for a way to team up together and do something together. Maybe they're working two jobs separately. Uh, Maybe one is at home with the kids and the other is out of the house. But if you're looking for a home-based, family-centered profession that you can work together in, this would be a really great reference and a resource just to see. Again, it's not the only options out there, but it would give you a little bit of an idea of what that might look like. And then I'd say the third group would be young people, pre-college age, before they've made a decision on what they want to you know, put their hand to and, and if before they make a decision on college and vocation and things like that. Because you're going to go through from that time period, you know, 16 years on, you're going to make some decisions that are going to impact the rest of your life. And maybe there are some professions out there that would be better served through apprenticing Mm. instead of a college route. Or maybe at least you can expose yourself to some other skills that might be more interesting than a traditional, you know, corporate job would be.
0: Oh, man. Yeah. If someone had handed me this book in high school, I would have. I would have been all over it. It's fantastic.
1: <laughs> and I, I really encourage parents, regardless of what your kids are going to do, I really encourage them to get a very broad base of skills for their kids. Yeah. Get them out there and learning from anyone who's to come on and apprentice them just to teach them a trade. Yeah. These are like you said, these are skills that you can have in the back of your pocket. And if there's ever tough times, these are things that people always will need. And there's a huge shortage right now of builders, and there's the building trades are projected to increase by 30% over the next, I think it was the next eight to 10 years. At the same time, they're expecting to see a huge implosion of a lot of white collar jobs, mm. largely due to automation. Yeah. And so there are just valuable marketable skills to be had, regardless of you know whether your child wants to become a lawyer or doctor, that having these skills and a lot of exposure to these skills, you're never going to regret that.
0: So we're nearing the end of our time together and I've got one last burning question for you. So you are sort of reorienting your life and figuring out which durable trades you wanted to adopt. And we've learned about some of the ones you adopted, like Shepherd. Did you try any of them or think about any of them and say, oh no,
1: this ain't working for me? <laughs> <laughs> well, it depends on the time of the day when you ask that question, Justin. <laughs> 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 I bet. <it. laughs> yeah, there is a learning curve with a lot of these <laughs> trades and especially if you're coming into this and you don't have and that's the thing why I tell parents to find mentors yeah. because parents used to be those mentors and they would train their kids up in the trade. And there's it's so valuable to have a mentor there in anything you're about to go into. Yeah. So Regardless of what you're interested in, find mentors, find people who can speak to their experience and help you answer questions when you're getting started, because it's just so valuable to have that. And it's so hard to learn from scratch. But yeah, I mean, we, you know, right now my fight is with making our own hay for our animals, which we broke down and got the John Deere 3020. It's a, you know, 60 year old tractor runs great but to in order to do your hay you've got to have the uh, cutter the the mower and the um, uh the rake yeah i see and i don't have a tether so it doesn't Ah. dry as quickly as it and then there's the baler and everything justin i can't afford the new (laughs) stuff right so this stuff is all 60 years old and it's all breaking down all the time and i'm a computer programmer and are you like I don't know how to do this stuff. (laughs) I haven't the finest clue. And if I want to take it in, ironically, if I want to take it in to have it fixed... The shop rate's like $150 an hour, right? Yeah. It's more than I ever made as a computer programmer. And so I find myself under the sickle bar trying to figure out how to replace a bolt in the middle of a field that's half cut and the sun's going down and I'm just about tearing my hair out Uh-oh. to get those 80 bales in. But eventually, you know, we'd make it. <laughs> <laughs> we have hay. We made it through the winter and uh, we'll try it again this spring. But there are some things there that I, I just doesn't quite work for me as well but i'm glad i'm learning nonetheless well, so we'll see where we land on all that
0: yeah well i mean this is a topic for a whole nother show but man just the whole right of repair especially in agriculture oh, yeah, my so god true. it's such a big issue that products are made today with no intention of ever repairing them and so even if we knew how to, if even if we weren't a computer programmer if we knew how to fix things
1: just the ability to do so is is being stripped away from us yeah that in being able to repair if you're ever looking into kind of a recession or a depression type of a situation yeah. people who can repair things are extremely valuable yeah
0: well, we're out of time, unfortunately. I thank you for uh, broadening our minds, repairing our understanding of household economies and work. Any one last thing you want to say to recommend the book or, or mention where folks can find you online?
1: Sure. So you can get the book at any bookstore or online. Our website is a good place. We're going to post discounts to the book if we ever find out where the book is on sale, we'll make sure that we have them up on our website. So come there. It's called thegrovestead.com. Great. And we also do a family newsletter for free. It's a print newsletter. And we kind of talk about what we're learning about trying to build family economies. So you'd be welcome to sign up for that newsletter there.
0: Oh, cool! Well. I will post a link in the program notes to this show on the podcast version on SoundCloud. I'll post the, the link to that, com, so people can follow up with you later. And again, reminder, we're doing a pledge drive starting next week, and you'll be able to pick up a copy of the book for a donation to the station at forwardradio.org. Rory, thank you so much for taking the time today. This was a great pleasure for me.
1: Thank you, Justin. I'm very honored to be here. All right. Stay tuned, everybody.
0: Coming up in just a minute, your community action calendar with all kinds of ideas for how you can get engaged in sustainability this week, right here, right now in Louisville. So stay tuned. Citizens of Louisville, we are back here on Sustainability Now with me, Justin Mogg getting ready to take action for sustainability. Get your calendars out and your pencils sharpened. Together, we can make this happen this week. What is on the calendar? It is packed this week. Coming up Tuesday, March 23rd at noon online, it's a great event, the Ohio River Future Forecast, a view from university students. The Ohio River Discussion Series will feature architecture, poli-sci, and engineering students from both UofL and the University of Cincinnati who will share multidisciplinary projects highlighting the Ohio River. The students will also reflect on the future as envisioned in the Ohio River Basin Plan. This discussion series is an opportunity for communities to share their knowledge and passion for the Ohio River. This monthly series features webinars on topics such as clean water, ecosystem restoration, research, education, transportation, flood control, and recreation. The series partners include the Ohio River Recreational Trail, the Ohio River Basin Alliance, the Foundation for Ohio River Education, or Sanko, and the National Park Service. And this coming Tuesday's event, Ohio River Future Forecast, features a student I really want you to get to know, a very impressive junior, Sam Kessler at UofL, Geography and Liberal Studies major. His project is about an obstacle to obtaining broad public support for a recreational trail on the Ohio River is the perception that the river is contaminated. Sam's research focuses on a simplified cumulative method for citizen scientists to test for E. coli bacteria in the Ohio and its watershed. And that's just one of four great student presentations that'll be this Tuesday the 23rd at noon focusing on the Ohio River. You can register for this great event at that's orsanco.org/education that's o r s a n c o . org/education. Now also on Tuesday the 23rd in the evening at 6 p.m., Louisville Parks and Recreation will be hosting a public forum about whether to keep the scenic loop in Cherokee Park car free. It'll be on Facebook, Facebook.com slash LouKYParks, L-O-U-K-Y Parks. With the onset of COVID-19 and the closure of almost all other recreational amenities, our parks have become busier than they ever have been. People have flocked to these spaces to exercise and socialize, and the need for more space became immediately apparent. We needed all the roadway for people, not for cars. In April 2020, Rundill Road in Iroquois Park, the Scenic Loop in Cherokee Park, and and the interior road in Chickasaw Park were all closed to vehicles by the city. Now, with the reduction in COVID-19 cases and the increasing number of people who've been vaccinated, the time is right to determine the best next steps for these public spaces. While we know that these closures have been a welcome relief for so many, unfortunately, not everyone agrees. This is why the city is asking for the public to weigh in to help guide Louisville Parks and Recreation and the Olmsted Parks Conservancy in finding a solution. So my friends, if you like car-free parks make your voice heard this tuesday march 23rd at 6 p.m facebook.com slash l-o-u-k-y parks Also on Tuesday, right after that, at 7 p.m. online, it's a teach-in on the Break Free from Plastic Pollution Act. It's co-hosted by A to Z Impacts of Plastic and Pittsburghers Against Single-Use Plastic. The event will feature an overview presentation about the Break Free from Plastic Pollution Act from two congressional aides, one from Senator Jeff Merkley's office and from Congressman Alan Lowenthal's office. Alex Goldsmith, National Organizing Director of Beyond Plastics, will share how people can support the bill. There'll be a short film by the creator of Story of Plastics, Steve Wilson, as well as a live Q&A. This event will not only showcase this groundbreaking legislation in our U.S. Congress, but it will also kick off the A to Z Series 2.0. Last summer, People Over Petro and many of its partners joined in a summer digital series and summit called Tackling the A to Z Impacts of Plastic, from fracked gas to plastic pollution in the ohio river valley and beyond see impactsofplastic.com for more info to join the a to z community and to watch recordings of past events and you can register for this great event on tuesday the 23rd which is 7 to eight thirty p.m online at tinyurl.com breakfreeteachin free teach in tinyurl.com breakfreeteachin teach in also Tuesday, March 23rd is our first opportunity to pick things up at the Louisville grows seeds and start sale. I'm so excited. I hope you are excited to, to get your garden started and a great, great place to get seeds and starts for your garden is Louisville grows your local environmental nonprofit. They are have a brand new greenhouse at their healthy house at 1639 Portland Avenue and Tuesday, March 23rd begins curbside pickup for coal crops. And you can order them now at seedsandstarts.org. All your favorite veggie plants, fruit trees, berry bushes, herbs, flowers, and gardening materials will be available. Starts and seeds are planted and grown with love by our greenhouse volunteers. Each variety of our plants are chosen for adaptability, biodiversity, beauty, and taste. Get your locally grown, low-cost plants at the Seeds and Starts sale and feel good knowing that your purchases will go to support sustainable food through the Louisville Grows Community Garden Grants Program. This year's sale will function a little differently for the safety of all. Louisville Grows will offer one in-person sale day, and that is on Saturday, April 17th, with pre-registration required. All other purchases will be online with curbside pickup. And again, you can learn more at seedsandstarts.org. And this Tuesday, March 23rd, curbside pickup for coal crops begins. The big in-person sale at the Greenhouse is Saturday, April 17th, and you need to register in advance for a time to come shop. They're limiting the amount of people, and walk-ups will not be allowed. And Slots are limited, so go now. Seedsandstarts.org and pick up orders for everything else besides coal crops. Pick up for those online orders will start on Thursday, April 22nd, Earth Day. Now, coming up Wednesday, March 24th, out at Bernheim, there's going to be a very special event, a fresh core farmer's market from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. out at Burnheim Arboretum and Research Forest in lovely Claremont, Kentucky, just south of us. You can help support the Youth Build Louisville's Urban Conservation Corps by shopping at the Fresh Core Farmers Market at Burnheim, where they'll be selling produce grown at their site right next to us in Smoketown neighborhood here in Louisville. This will be a three-week limited-run market. A list of items to be sold will be shared on Bernheim's social media each week prior to the market, and the market will be located across Arboretum Way from the Visitor Center. And it all begins this Wednesday, March 24th, from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. You can learn more at Bernheim.org. That's B-E-R-N-H-E-I-M.org. Also on Wednesday the 24th at 6 p.m. online, it's a great event from UofL. Meet the professor, one of our favorite professors, Dr. Kate Fossil, speaking on You Can't Be Neutral Institutionalizing Ann Braden's Anti Racist Activist Legacy at the University of Louisville. Kate Fossil is a professor of women's gender and sexuality studies and founding director of the Ann Braden Institute for Social Justice Research. She was the recipient of the 2020 Trustees Award and is author of the Ann Braden biography, Subversion. Southerner, you won't want to miss this great talk from Kate Fossil. You can find the link to register at louisville.edu/sustainability. On Thursday, March 25th, from 7 to 8:30 p.m., the U of L Speaking of Women's and Gender and Sexuality Studies Department presents a completely different thing. Uh, All eyes on Louisville. It's their Spring 2021 Social Justice Speaker Series and this final event in that series on thursday the 25th at 7 p.m is race gender and class in and through sports it'll open with a reading of all you had to do was play the game boy by poet hannah drake and then we'll hear from four different great speakers on the panel daryl young jr former guest on this program he's manager of programming for the ollie center merlin cano hot walker at churchill downs and family resources coordinator for backside learning center bryn sebring director of player experience and operations at racing Louisville and Dr. Brigitte Burpo professor in the department of health and sports sciences at U of L. The moderator will be Dr. Billy Castle, president of the young professionals of the urban league. It's all sponsored by that amazing and Braden Institute for social justice research and several organizations and departments at U of L. You can find the links and more information at events.louisville.edu. And again, it's on March 25th at 7 PM. All eyes on Louisville, race, gender and class in and through sports. Also coming up at U L, but virtually, on Friday, March 26th at noon, it's our Eco Reps Workshop on Resilience Justice. Join us for our monthly Eco Reps Workshop featuring locals making a difference in sustainability. Our featured speaker on March 26th will be Professor Tony Arnold, the Bowl Chair in Property and Land Use at the University of Louisville, where he teaches in the Brandeis School of Law, as well as the Department of Urban and Public Affairs, and directs the Interdisciplinary Resilience Justice Project. Professor Arnold teaches and researches about social and environmental justice and governance at the intersection of land, water, and the environment. He's active in public policy and community service. Resilience justice, which Tony will be talking about on Friday the 26th at noon, is all about the unequal vulnerabilities of low-income communities of color to many different kinds of shocks and changes, including climate change, economic and housing shocks, health crises, pollution releases, and more. Systemic racism, structural inequality, colonialism, and other embedded injustices create cross-system effects that undermine communities' adaptive capacities. We will focus on one type of inequality affecting low-income neighborhoods of color, green and blue infrastructure, which includes parks and green spaces, trees and forests, clean and restored waterways, biotic stormwater controls, community gardens, and more. Examples from Louisville, Los Angeles, and DC will be discussed, as will policy and governance forms. You can find the link to join. You don't need to register in advance for our Friday, March 26th, Noon Eco Reps Workshop on Resilience and Justice. You can find it at louisville.edu slash sustainability. Coming up on Saturday, March 27th, 10 a.m. to 2 p.m., it's a pop-up, drop-up, free recycling event for residents of Jefferson County out in Valley Station at the Sun Valley Ball Field Complex. 10401 Lower River Road. They'll be accepting items for recycling, including up to three electronic items, metal and appliances, can't bring any refrigerators or other items with coolant, up to four passenger tires, household recyclables following your basic curbside rules, yard waste following curbside rules, and wooden pallets, documents for shredding and recycling, and prescription medication. More information is at louisvilleky.gov slash popups. And this event will also be the pickup location for the event I've mentioned earlier, the City of Louisville Backyard Compost Bin and Rain Barrel Sale. The city's excited to offer backyard compost bins and rain barrels at wholesale prices. Composting and capturing stormwater are two of the most essential ways to close the loop in your own home or garden. Turn something that is otherwise considered a problem we need to get rid of into valuable resources to sustain your family. With a simple compost bin, you can turn organic household waste into a valuable soil amendment for your garden and houseplants. And by disconnecting your downspouts from Louisville's combined sewer system, you can not only capture rainwater for irrigation and cleaning, but you can help reduce the amount of raw sewage being dumped directly into our local waterways. You need to order your compost bin or rain barrel online at Louisville ecwid. Dot com and then pick it up on Saturday the twenty seventh, any any time from ten to two at the Sun Valley Ballfield Complex during this pop up drop off event. Again, go to Louisville Composter Sale. Also coming up on Saturday the 27th, it's an old Louisville tree planting. From 9 a.m. to noon, we'll be meeting up at St. Catherine and Garvin Place. The Old Louisville Neighborhood Council and the UofL Sustainability Council invite volunteers to help restore the urban canopy. We'll be planting 50 to 60 street trees with our neighbors at locations scattered around the neighborhood. Volunteers should report to the central check-in site at St. Catherine and Garvin to be assigned to a small physically distanced tree planting team. Donuts, coffee, and light breakfast items will be available prior to 9 a.m. when the work will begin. And a pizza lunch will be served for all volunteers after the trees are planted. All our welcome tools will be provided. Mass and physical distancing will be required. You can learn more at louisville.edu sustainability. And again, it's this Saturday, the 27th, starting at 9 a.m. at St. Catherine and Garvin. Don't miss this old Louisville tree planting. Also on Saturday, the 27th, just after it at 1 p.m., the Louisville Climate Action Network will be hosting a before-you-buy workshop on going solar at your home or business. It's not too late to tap the sun for clean solar power. Yes, lg and has requested state permission to change net metering rules in regressive ways, but there's still time to install and receive net metering with parity, as well as a 26% federal tax credit. We recommend you do so before June 2021, or the situation may change. You can attend the Louisville Climate Action Network's Before You Buy workshop to visit an existing easy-to-see system, then come indoors for tips and consumer advice, as well as get answers to your questions about going solar. You can register at louisvillecan.org. Again, it's Saturday the 27th at 1 p.m. Learn more at louisvillecan.org. Now, this Sunday, March 28th, is also Weed Appreciation Day. And no, we don't mean that kind of weed. We mean the weeds you can eat. Spring foraging. This is the season for it. And there are workshops being held this Sunday, March 28th, at Lots of Food at 1647 Portland Avenue. The workshop will also be repeated if you can't make it this Sunday on April 11th, and they're from 2 to 4 p.m. There is already delicious salad to be had right outside your door if you know where to look. The Spring Foraging Workshop features spring plants, flowers, berries, roots, and even mushrooms that you can find right here in the city. Amanda Fuller of Lots of Food will focus on the easiest and tastiest goodies. You may be surprised at what's in your own neighborhood. All participants will get a handout, and in-person foragers will take home samples to enjoy and share. There will be a limited number of in-person tickets for $25, and additional virtual tickets available for $20. Masks will be required, and the event is outdoors, and they will be observing physical distancing. You can reserve your tickets and learn more at LouisvilleLotsOfFood.com. And again, the Spring Foraging Workshops are Sunday the 28th and Sunday, April 11th from 2 to 4 p.m. at Louisville, Last thing I need to tell you about. Sunday, March 28th at 3 p.m., the Kentucky Center for African American Heritage presents Medicine and the Black Body, Scientific Racism and Medical Apartheid in U.S. history. It'll be a video presentation by John Chenault, Director of Anti-Racism Initiatives at U of L's School of Medicine. Medicine in the Black Body examines the generally unacknowledged but instrumental role of doctors and medical researchers in the invention and institutionalization of scientific racism. He uses readily available evidence from medical history to demonstrate how racism and medicine developed simultaneously in the U.S. and are indeed codependent. Uncovering the medical history of the Black Body exposes the key role of medical professionals in engineering and perpetuating the most complete and enduring dehumanization. Of a people in history. There'll be a discussion and QA about the video presentation with John Chenault on Sunday, March 28th at 3 p.m. Advanced registration is required. You can just go to kcaah.org to find the link to medicine and the black body discussion to register for this event on Sunday at 3 p.m. And that is all the time we have for today here on Sustainability Now. I thank you so much for taking the time to tune in today. I hope you'll take action for sustainability this week, and I'll be back in your ears again in one week's time, my friends. Be well. <laughs>